My goal in these Advent sermons, last two and today too, uh, is that you and I would be astonished anew in a fresh, current way where you are right now about how singular is biblical religion, the Christian faith, how utterly set apart and distinct from all other religions and spiritualities and philosophies in our world that it is. And the metaphor we've been using is that all other religions essentially say that or require us to climb up the mountain to reach God. Whatever description of God that might be, in order that through various rituals or rules or ways to clean ourselves up or get connected, we might become acceptable and in fellowship with God. It's a common way to view the religions of the world, that we all climb the mountain to approach God. And of course, you and I know the fundamental problem of this is found throughout Scripture, but maybe in Romans 3.23, that, you know, all have sinned and fall short, way short of the glory of God. How can we enter into God's glory when we have disqualified ourselves by our sin? How do you climb up? In the Psalm 24, it says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? That's the question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, well, he who has clean hands and a pure heart and doesn't lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, that those are the requirements to be in the presence of God. How does a sinner draw near to God's holy presence? I I was thinking that that the other day. I, I watched that Netflix documentary shot in 2021 called uh, 14 Peaks, uh, that nothing is impossible. And it tells that story of this incredible feat of this Nepalese mountaineer and his team. The mountaineer's name is Nirmal Purja, if I've pronounced that right. And, and he sets the challenge to climb all 14 8 meter peaks above the death zone, you know, Mount Everest, K2, those incredibly high mountains, and to do so in seven months, which everybody would say would be crazy, unheard of, even superhuman to do something like that, organize all that and subject your body to what you have to go through. But as I'm watching him scale through all the adversity, watching him scale peak after peak, I'm looking at this, these incredibly treacherous, incredibly high mountains, this guy, guy in a class by himself, clearly, yet as imposing and insurmountable these mountains are that really none of them compare to the mountain of God, to reach up to God's presence. And there is no mere man, some guy, in a class by himself who's up for that, up for that challenge, it's utterly impossible. 
so, so biblical religion is utterly unique. The Christian faith is that the one true God, the God we learn about in the Old Testament, he comes all the way down the mountain to redeem us, put us on his back and take us up with him. And that's the story of Christmas. It's nothing shy of that. So Alan passed along a mind, this mind-blowing video really made in the late 70s through the Hubble telescope. And it shows this view of Earth from way out in space and it descends to Earth every couple of seconds by a power of 10 meters, so 10 times closer every few seconds. And so you start 10 to the 23rd power meters, which is 10 million light years away. That's where you start. And every couple of seconds, you drop a power of 10. So you go through this void where where galaxies look like dust. And then slowly you approach the Milky Way galaxy full of stars and and planets. Then you zero in gradually on, on one star. And that one star becomes our solar system. And then you focus down within that solar system to this one little speck. And gradually it becomes Earth. And you descend and gradually you see Florida. And then you focus in and you see a laboratory in Tallahassee, Florida. You descend further into a forest near the laboratory and then into one leaf. And then into a point on that leaf. And then you keep descending into the leaf in this microscopic world of, of leaf cell walls and cell membranes down further into this subatomic universe of electrons and protons, and now you're at 10 to the negative 16 atometers, and into what really looks like you're out of space again. They're bouncing into each other, down the quarks, the electrons, the protons, this dramatic descent. And, but again, you look at this descent, which is staggering, and, and nothing, nothing it compares to the dramatic descent of our creator who flings galaxies into the universe as he, he stoops and shrinks down to become flesh. And Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I consider your heavens, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are even mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, and yet Christmas displays just how much God cares for him. A professor of mine, Dr. Kelly, who spoke here once, used to try to rattle us in class by getting us to understand the depth of the incarnation when he said this, as if, as if you, in his South Carolinian low country accent, as if you became a slug, a slug. And we're looking at that, a slug? Well, last week we focused on the, the deity of the baby in the manger. He, he's none other than God himself, this living and true God. Think of all the images of God you have in the Old Testament the holiness and glory of God. And in the central miracle, the Bible, the heart of the Christian faith, the story of Christmas is that 
This God comes all the way down the mountain even to become one with us, Emmanuel, one with us. And no one would have guessed this. And and, and fact is more fantastic than fiction. God becomes man. And so today, we're gonna look at the real humanity of that baby in the manger. And again, we're gonna look at John 1. Let's hear God's word. The famous prologue to John's gospel, one of the most profound depictions of God's great descent down the mountain. Hear God's word. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. And so one of the most earth-shattering statements ever made, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So last week we spoke about the word. And the word is that underlying reality, the unifying principle of all things. Various things are said about the word early on in the prologue. The word is eternal. He's always existed. He's personal, not just a force, but personal, enjoying fellowship face-to-face with his father. In fact, he's God himself, possessing all the attributes of the father. And he's also the agent of creation, all things coming into being through him, nothing coming into being without him. And in addition, he's the life giver, meaning he gives life because he is life. There's nothing that has life that didn't receive it through him, and he especially gives eternal life. 
And then he's the light giver, being light himself and giving light to all things, especially illumining who God is. This very one who holds everything together is the one about which John says, and the word, this word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the word became flesh. It's a shocking statement. There are people in the ancient world that would call flesh nasty flesh. God would never touch it. The word became flesh. It refers to his real humanity, a full human nature. All the faculties of our human nature, body and soul, mind, affections, and will. All of it, a true human nature like you have It refers to human existence that that suffers all the effects of the fall, that that frailty you have, the vulnerability, like the susceptibility to temptation, of of getting tired and and hungry and thirsty and, and hurt and troubled and lonely and rejected. He came to his own, his own didn't receive him. You can translate it, came to his own house or his own home and his home rejected him. He gets sick that, that ultimately dies. That human nature, he takes on himself. The only distinction between his human nature and ours is that he's not infected with original sin and he doesn't commit personal sin such that Romans 8.3 makes a startling statement when he says, God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He's on the edge of a knife there. I mean, that's close to heresy there. He's getting as close as he can without saying that Jesus was a sinner. It's a full human nature that suffers all aspects of fallen existence save his own sin. The fourth century theologian Gregory of Nazianzus, during the Trinitarian discussions, he gave this succinct reason in which the Son of God takes full fallen humanity. They're trying to think it through, and he makes this statement, which is a glorious statement. He says, that which is not taken up is not healed. That which is not taken up is not healed. What it means is that in order to heal you, the Son of God had to take up a full, complete human nature with all your faculties for if he did, if he only had a partial human nature, he couldn't heal you fully. He had to be one of you, as Hebrews 2 would say, to be made like us in every respect. And the sense is that all of our faculties have suffered because of the fall. We, we enter into misery because of the fall in, in our mind, in our affections, in our will. We just don't operate the way we want to operate. And so he possesses all of those in order that he might heal it all. 
that he might represent us fully, that he might identify with us fully, that he might sympathize with us fully, that he might live a righteous life fully for us, that he might reconcile us fully to God and therefore transform us completely. And in addition to descending down to take on a human nature that suffers the effects of sin, he descends into a world that suffers the effects of sin, like the accumulated total of sin that he enters into. And even the circumstances of his birth magnify this for us. It was far from an idyllic scene. It was, it was traumatic, it was trauma, was the circumstances around his birth. Sure, Joseph and Mary, you know, Joseph is of the line of David. He has royal blood in his veins. Mary may also, however, they are members of an occupied, oppressed, humiliated people, been run over for centuries, intimidated for centuries. They are amongst that people, poor peasants, day laborers, scraping out an existence. They come from a despised village within Israel called Nazareth. And Mary, the circumstances of Jesus' conception means that Mary's been facing the stares and the gossip and suspicion of her small town. Therefore, she accompanies Joseph to the census. She doesn't want to be alone, subjected to that by herself. And when they get to Bethlehem, there is no room in the inn, and no one offers to give up a bed for her, though she's obviously great with child. The innkeeper seems calculated. He wants whoever can pay the highest. The people just seem callous. It's a hard world they live in. Later, Herod the Great goes after all the baby boys in the area that are Jesus's age. So the family has to pick up and flee to Egypt and become refugees for a time, but behind all this, Revelation 12 says the dragon has been coming after them. It's all out warfare around Jesus's birth. You see, right at the beginning, even as a baby, in his most fragile condition, he's taking up within himself so much of the misery and devastation of our fallen condition he feels it, experiences it, in order that he might undo it. Well, the term became is important too. It became, it means he enters a new condition without ceasing to be what he was before, such that a, a, a lady may become a mother without ceasing to be a lady. A man may become a father without ceasing to be a man. He continues to be the son of God while at a point in time taking on something else that is therefore irreversible. The, the fact that it's in the past tense indicates this completed action that can never be undone. Like you can't go back on it. The incarnation is not a short-term mission trip. It's not a foray into our broken existence. When he made that decision, he made a decision he couldn't walk away from it became permanent and irreversible. He stuck himself in our condition. 
one commentator says, there's no parallel anywhere else in the world's religions to the sympathetic presence of God in Christ sharing our human struggle with us. He, he bound himself to us. Sometimes people mention the problem of evil and suffering as, as a reason not to, not to have faith in God. What kind of God? But you see, though it's a problem for everyone to come up with answers to that. It's a very hard question, but the Christian faith has resources that no one else does. What we say is, we're not asking God to get off the hook for the evils of the world. What we're saying is God put himself on the hook for the evils of the world. He hung himself on a cross to deal with the underlying cause of all the evil in the world. He joined himself to that. Well, then we read, and he dwelt among us. And it literally means he pitched his tent among us or his tabernacle among us. And we talked about one aspect of that in Psalm 15 when at Sinai, everyone was living in tents at the base of the mountain. And God said, well, if everyone's living in tents, I want you to make me a tent too. And so God comes down the mountain to live in a tent with his people. But there's a further aspect of that. Not only is it Emmanuel, God with us, but at the culmination of the Exodus, the last chapter of the book, there's this amazing scene where God's glory descends and fills the tabernacle. It's a stunning scene of God's visible manifestation of his glory, this pulsating, vibrant, brilliant, radiant glory cloud that descends and covers the tabernacle, this holy presence of God right in their midst. And as God visibly manifested his presence in the midst of his people, what he was saying is, I'm gonna dwell right here. And you can meet me here. And you're gonna hear my law and you can receive my grace and you can find my forgiveness and you can enjoy my presence. So John has taken all that imagery and he's looking at us as he says this, dwelling among us and he's saying, all that God promised to his people through the tabernacle in the wilderness, all that, all of that pointed here, pointed to Jesus. He's our true tabernacle, God meets with us in him. He meets with us in him. It's God coming down the mountain, God's presence among us to establish communion with us, show us God's way, extend God's grace and forgiveness. But additionally, it just highlights Jesus' holiness. He's God himself in our midst. But notice the Holy One subjects himself to a sinful human environment, to sinners. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, we have no measure, I don't think, to be able to understand what this must have meant for him to come from the highest heaven down to such a world as this. If you can just take a moment to imagine times in which you've entered a space that was just so repugnant that you just couldn't get out of there fast enough. And sometimes we get a glimpse of how hard it was for Jesus just to be here, that it was unbearable for him. And we can't understand it because our sin and our sinful world, though at times it's jarring to us, ordinarily we're just used to it. We're one of, we're one of it, it's our environment. Like we don't really know what holiness feels like or, or what real goodness is or divine 
true joy is. A sin is such an aberration of that and so, so abhorrent. There's this town in Peru that we hated passing through because, I mean, it reeked, it reeked. And we'd always hold our noses and count the seconds to get through that town because there was this fish processing plant there and it just smelled awful. And yet the people that lived there, like you watched them through the windows and they just took it. They didn't react. They weren't wearing masks or anything like we thought we would have to wear if we lived there. They would be like us in this world. We just, we just deal with sin. But you imagine going from face to face with the Father down into the stench and pollution of sin. But that's what he does. And he does that voluntarily. And then John goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. And to speak of glory here again recalls the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's glory descended upon it and, and, and the people saw the visible manifestation of God's glory. And in the same way the disciples are saying, as we walked with him those three years, we saw and beheld glory. We couldn't explain it any other way. I know he was a human. He walked with us and had a body that was like ours and emotions and intellect, but we saw God as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. And in through his human nature, Jesus revealed the glory of God. Dr. Kelly said, the eternal beauty of the one true God is most wonderfully concentrated in the son of his love in whose face we see the heart of the father revealed. If we want to know what the heart of the father is, we see it in the son. There's not a distinction between the heart of the father and the heart of the son. If we're terrified by the God behind the universe, we look at the heart of the son he showed God's glory through his wonders and his works as the only son shows the traits of a father. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In verse 18, it even says, he's in the side or in the bosom of the father in the closest relationship. No one has ever seen God, but he exegetes him for us. He draws out the character of God and exposes him to us. And the remarkable thing is that what John most wants to get across about the glory of God is not the majesty, the radiant, pulsating glory, but what he most wants to get across to you and me is that God's glory is especially seen in his utter humility and his self-giving and his self-sacrificing, that the heartbeat of God's glory is especially revealed in Jesus' descent. And this prepares for what Jesus is going to say later in the gospel, right before he enters Jerusalem, when he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does that mean? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What he's talking about is he's going to be glorified when he's lifted up on a cross. Like if you wanted to see what glory is, that's glory. Like that utter rejection and humiliation and torment of the cross is the glory of God. It's the self-giving of God. No holds barred, I'll, I'll endure anything and everything 
in order to cover the sin of my people. Philip Yancey says, the Messiah who showed up wore a different kind of glory. I love that phrase. It's the glory of humility. God is great, the cry of the Muslims is a truth which needed no supernatural being to teach them. That God is little, that is the truth which Jesus taught man. That God would become little for you. A baby for you. Such that the hymn says our God contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. See, the little baby in the manger, even more God continuing to descend to the cross itself for sinners. And so John goes on to say, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So was there no grace? Was there no truth in the law? Of course there was. Like, the grace of the old covenant, there were priests and tabernacles and sacrifice, the truth of the old covenant. God's law manifests the nature and character of God. However, in a deeper way, the law showed us our desperate need of grace. That the law is the standard no sinner can keep. It's the mountain no sinner can climb. Sinai demonstrates that to us. Stay at the foot of the mountain. Sinful priests and animal sacrifices sure can't cover our failure to keep the law. And so they ultimately point to the truth, meaning the reality, the fulfillment of all the priests, all the sacrifices, all the tabernacle. They anticipate what had to happen, and nothing short of this could happen, is that the Son of God would have to become flesh for sinners. Truth and grace is incarnate, and the gospel requires the God-man because God alone is big enough to keep the law and cover your sin, and man alone is responsible to do so. And therefore, God becomes man to accomplish it for us. And so an old fifth century theologian, Cyril of Alexandria, said it this way, the law projected toward the beauty of truth, and the truth is Christ through whom we gained entrance and arrived close to the Father, raising ourselves like on a mountain to the knowledge of God. Christ comes down the mountain to pick you up and take you up with him. And John declares to us, to know the Son of God made flesh, to believe in him, to receive this gospel, is to experience grace upon grace. The grace that gives way to more grace. That God the Son becomes flesh to be a continuous, inexhaustible source of blessing to you. To never run dry, to, to, to never get past your limit, to keep flowing towards you in whatever circumstance and need and sin pattern and shame and guilt you have to flow into your life, showing you God's heart for you who's drawn to us in our sin and suffering and to confer on you and constantly help you know that as you receive Christ by faith, you become yourself a son or a daughter of God and to experience the depth and the beauty of that committed delighted in relationship that all this led to that you would have what the son always enjoyed. So God the son becoming flesh and dwelling among us, that's the gospel of Christmas. He exerted such a momentous effort to enter into our reality and to redeem us. 
And what lies before us this time of year is that do we get amazed by it again? And so the Christmas gospel is you're more sinful than you ever fathomed, only God could redeem you. But again, you're more cherished and loved than you ever dared dream. God was more than willing to become flesh to redeem you. The little baby is God's greatest gift to you, his covenant love incarnate. And so would you be astonished by that again? And if that is what our God is like, and if that is his method of changing the world, won't you and I then, who've experienced this grace upon grace, won't we increasingly aim to imitate such a God and endeavor to engage in his method of changing the world? How does it take place? Well, in Christ, it takes place through humility and through self-sacrifice and through identifying with our fellow fallen people in their need to point them to such a singular savior who came down the mountain to take all our sin and misery onto himself in order to take us back up to God. May this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. And that's Paul's application there at the Christ hymn. May something of that mind be echoed in us individually and as a body. God's people said, amen.